Welcome to episode 20 of Necronomenon. I am your host, Jenna. I am Matt. We've been really awful, and we're sorry. Yeah, we were too busy having fun. Yeah, we kind of did a uh, cross-US trip. It didn't really lend itself to research and nope. recording and all that too well. It sure um, didn't. <laughs> we've kind of had this episode in the works for two months now, mm-hmm. um, and haven't done anything about it until now. We hope you'll forgive us, and we're, we're going to be back on schedule as of now. So if you've got any suggestions for stuff you want to hear, send them in. Let us know. Necronomenom at multiplenerdgasm.com. This is a film review slash discussion podcast focusing on horror and cult films. Today we are going to talk about the Mothman prophecies. Mm. We first got interested in, in this. Well, we've both seen the movie previously when it came out, but we got interested in this when we went to the International Museum of Cryptozoology mm-hmm. in Portland, Maine, and saw there wasn't very much there. It was just no. like a little plaque, and I think the front of the movie yeah. um, about it, and we were like, mm, that would be a good one. <laughs> so in this episode, we're going to talk about the film, The Mothman mm-hmm. Prophecies, the book that the film was based on, mm-hmm. Um, also called The Mothman Prophecies by John Keel, and the actual sightings of the Mothman. We are also going to talk about UFOs. Yeah, unfortunately we have to. Yeah. Want to know how that fits in? Keep listening. <laughs> and i got to say as well, it's actually just, just at the end of last year, 50 years mm. since the, the first sighting of the Mothman. So this is a little late, but timely. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary, Mothman, wherever you are. Well, we know where he was in the 60s. So first of all, the film, which was based on a book written by a man called John Keel, uh, but the screenplay was written by Richard Haddam. Yeah, he was a writer on some episodes of Supernatural. Uh, True Calling, which if you haven't seen, is a great show. It's got um, I don't think I've seen Eliza Dushku, you oh, know, yeah. Faith from Buffy, sure, um, and The Gates, which was an okay show about vampires, but it didn't, okay. it didn't do very well, so I think it got cancelled. You're a vampire expert, so I'll, yeah. I'll, your opinion counts as far as I'm concerned. The Gates concerned. was probably about mm, seven or eight years ago. Oh, wow. Okay. The film was directed by Mark Pellington, uh, who actually, I'd n- I've not heard of him. Uh, I don't know him very well. No. And I don't think I've seen anything else that he's done. Um, I've seen Arlington Road by him, but that was a long time ago. Is that the one with Tom Hanks? That's the one with um, Tim Robbins. Tim Robbins from Shawshank. Mm-hmm. You love that guy. Yeah, that's the one with Tim Robbins and Jeff Bridges. Okay, definitely haven't seen it. About neighbors. Okay, de- definitely haven't seen it. I thought <laughs> well, it was. There's more to it. I'm probably thinking. I'm I think one conflating Arlington with Arlington Cemetery. Uh, somebody and- kidnaps a son, and there's a terrorist. Uh, it's been a long, long time since mm-hmm. I've seen that movie. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the score for the film was done by a company called Tom and Andy, which I guess is two people. Mm, production company. Yep. Yeah. Right. Uh, as soon as I saw the name, I was like, oh, cool. Yeah. They put their names together. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they've done a lot of other horror movies. Um, I hadn't heard of them until this one. Mm. The name caught my attention in the credits just because it, it, it is two names mm-hmm. put together. So. <laughs> uh, the film stars Richard Gere mm-hmm. as John Klein, who is based on John Keel, the author of <laughs> the author of the book. Yeah, the book is kind of a diary, you know, in a way, mm-hmm. or a collection of things that actually happened to the author. So, yeah, Richard Gere's character is loosely based on mm-hmm. on that that person. Yeah, it stars Laura Linney as Connie Mills, mm-hmm. who is based on the real life person Mary Hire, who helped John Keel out with the investigations. Mm-hmm. I love Laura Linney. I know you do. I love her. <laughs> yeah, I love her from Congo. Oh yeah, right. That is it's one of my favorites. For she, some reason. She is also in a film that I really like, Primal Fear, with Richard Gere as well. Oh, right. Together in that with Edward right. Norton, which is a really good movie. You should watch it. 
Um, it also stars Deborah Messing as Mary Klein, mm-hmm. um, who is John Klein's wife. She's not in it for very long. <laughs> Spoilers. Um, she's not a very big character in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Will Patton as Gordon Smallwood, who is based on, we will call him a contactee, yeah. uh, Woody Derenberger. Yeah. Well, he's an amalgamation of a bunch of people, but he's yeah primarily That's right. a, the book character, Woody Derenberger, which mm-hmm. is a great name. I know. <laughs> Woody Derenberger. Uh, the film came out in 2002. It was based on the book from 1975. Mm-hmm. But the real-life events happened in Point Pleasant, West Virginia in 1966 and 1967. Mm-hmm. We'll have a look later on at, at why, you know, uh, they went on for so long and, and, and mm-hmm. the relevance of various things. After the death of his wife, John Klein throws himself into research regarding a creature that she saw just prior to her death. His investigation takes him to a place called Point Pleasant in West Virginia, where residents have been reporting strange encounters. He's then assisted by the local cop, Connie Mills, and a resident named Gordon Smallwood. No relation to Terry Smallshoe. (laughs) And if you want to know who that is, listen to Tempting Fate, one of our other podcasts. Like I said, this took us a few months to do. We actually had to watch the movie twice. Yeah, because we Um, forgot it. Well, not forgot it, but it was actually, I'm glad that we did. So am I, but that is kind of what I wanted to talk about. So I did Mm -hmm. see this movie at the cinema when it came out in 2002, Mm -hmm. and this now marks the third time I've seen it. And it is not a terrible movie, but it is Mm -hmm. utterly forgettable. I, when it first came out, the trailers were on a lot. I guess I was, it was in high school or just finished high school and I was going to the movies a lot. And Mm -hmm. I remember seeing trailers for this all the time, in particular, the little snip with the, where it flies into the car. Or he's holding, he says, over the phone, what am I holding my hand? And the voice says, chapstick. My friends and I were like, oh, wow, this looks really cool and creepy. Uh, and then, yeah, I completely forgot about it after I saw it. Mm-hmm. And then we watched it twice. The first time we watched it recently, uh, I thought, yeah, it's, it's not bad. No, right. The second time, I was like, this it's actually not that great. No, it's, it's a little boring. Yeah. Um, if you haven't seen it before, it's not a bad movie. I think you should watch yeah. it. It's. I wouldn't really classify it as a horror movie, though. No, no. It's a. Th- it's more of a thriller, psychological thriller, I guess. Yeah, it's got horror elements, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah. It's just it's because it's a bit supernatural. That's right. But it, I feel like it's very light on all of the elements. Sure. Yeah, it, it tries to do a lot of things. It's a mystery. Mm-hmm. It's like a like a mystery. It's I like I like those kind of films a lot, and I mean this one's pretty good. Especially considering the source material. Oh, um, yeah, we'll, we'll we will cover that. But like, get into that later. I can't, I, they did a great job, Richard Haddam. You did a great job adapting <laughs> that fucking book. This was a long book, mm. and the amount of story that Haddam had to extrapolate from just ramblings yeah. of an old man <laughs> is amazing. The film uh, has a fairly mediocre score. On, I think it's it, it's well deserved. It's yeah, it's, it's not a great movie. It's not a terrible movie. It's fine. There's some stuff about it that's actually really good. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a plot point. We are going to talk about spoilers. It's you know it's very old. Uh, if you haven't seen it, just check it out. Or or you know if you don't care, just listen anyway. Yeah. <laughs> the kind of climax of the film features a large bridge collapse, and that whole sequence is actually really cool. Like it's really well done. Yep. The, the like it's very convincing. It's uh, shot well. The the special effects. Uh, I actually didn't realize it was a model. Yeah, I like, know. I know. It's a it's a scale model. I, I mean, and I mean, of course it is. Right, because but it looks very real because there's no CG. Mm-hmm. In fact, I don't think there's there's very little CG at all in this film. Um, certain scenes involving Indrid Cold, who is another character, um, 
that look like they might be CGI. Apparently, they're not. It's just in-camera effect. Right. So as Matt just brought up, um, Indrid Cold is another character in the film. He's not played by anybody, though. He mm. is more of an entity, kind of like Mothman is. It's not very clear in the film whether Mothman and Indrid Cold are the same being. Yeah. Um, the uh, the Mothman is not really in the movie very much. He only shows up on screen like six times mm-hmm. briefly. There are, I did notice the second time through, um, something about the Mothman that stands out to everybody that has seen him in, say, real life and in the film, mm. were his glowing red eyes. Sure. And I did notice the second time watching that there were a lot of callbacks to that. There were a lot of scenes where yeah. you saw two blinking lights in the distance and they're both red. Yeah. Or, like, two red lights on a street. Brake lights. Yep. And, yeah. Yeah, a lot of imagery, but he's not in it, really. Right. Like the Mothman, mm-hmm. as you probably are imagining him. So the Mothman is kind of just a antagonist of the film. Sure. I guess. <laughs> um <laughs> He is what brings John to Point Pleasant to investigate everything that's going on, all of the sightings. Mm -hmm. I guess if he and Indrid Cold are different people, then he never speaks to anybody. Indrid Cold does. True. Yeah, okay. Through the book, I found out that Indrid Cold is actually a... Well... (laughs) Go on. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Indrid Cold is a man in black. Mm Mm-hmm. This was not a concept that John Keel came up with, mm-hmm. but he did coin the term MIB. Yeah, he popularized that. And when we when we say men in black, yes, we are talking yes. like Will Smith and mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Tommy Lee Jones, that right. kind of men in black. And the men in black will <laughs> <laughs> Again, un- it's very unclear uh, <laughs> right. why why exactly any of this stuff is happening. Uh they come to people's houses, they call them, they try to lead them away from the Mothman or from aliens or from whatever. Right. It's not really clear why they do that. No, because but- sometimes in in other anecdotes from the book, they're encouraging people to right. investigate things. And if they are trying to lead people away from it, they're doing a terrible job <laughs> yeah, because right. they are the main thing they, they, that people see. They keep showing like, up in flying cars and like that's right. pulling people like, over and being like, forget about yeah, the UFOs. Do not, yeah, yeah, you did not see this. Yeah. But like, stop. Bringing people to your planets and... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you don't want people to talk about you, go away. <laughs> like, how hard is it? Indrid Cold first came up uh, through the accounts of Woody Derenberger, mm-hmm. who witnessed him uh, land his spaceship in front of him, yep. spoke to him, and then uh, got ESP powers yep. until months and months later when Indrid Cold showed up again and took him away to his planet where... It is very similar to Earth, except everyone is a nudist. Wow. Mm. And in, in the book, that's really the role of Injured Cold. He just shows up and talks to this dude mm-hmm. a bunch of times and tells him that he's from another planet and, you know. There were several of them in the book. I think that they just picked the coolest name and went with that. Yeah, yeah. And made him the Mothman. So um, the bridge clap sequence, which we mentioned earlier, which was very impressive, uh, it was actually a huge endeavor, and it took them like three months to fabricate it. Uh, apparently, they estimate 20,000 individual pieces of steel went into creating a photorealistic scale model of a suspension bridge, uh, although apparently they weren't able to create one that looked the same as the actual bridge. Because uh, we haven't talked about that yet. There actually was a bridge collapse. Uh, and connected to the Mothman. The film does mostly feature events that actually happened in one form or another. Uh, they're just kind of tied together in a more coherent way than they were in, air quotes, real life. That's right. And 
in the film, it says that they never found out why the bridge collapsed. The Silver Bridge, it was called. Which is not true. Um, they did later find that that it was a stress corrosion crack mm-hmm. in a single eye bar in the suspension chain that led to the entire bridge falling down. And there are several of these suspension bridges still in existence that have kind of reached their time now mm-hmm. yeah. and have gotten a bit dangerous because of this. Because the way it works is more like a bicycle chain that each element is integral to the entire structure of the bridge. Right. So if one thing breaks, the whole bridge collapses. Okay. So that's so what- it's, a, it's a very old way of building them. But shortly after the bridge collapse, people remembered that there had been Mothman sightings in the area, and then other people started trying to link them together somehow. And that's how that's this right. whole thing. That's how the whole thing became about the Mothman. Is people started saying, "Oh, the Mothman was some kind of harbinger and was warning people yeah. about the bridge collapse and and all this other stuff." And then people came forward with all these stories. Conveniently enough, later on, that, mm-hmm. that seemed to to verify stuff about that. Um, the name of the paranormal expert in the film that Richard Gere speaks to. Uh, his name is Leek, uh, which is Keel backwards. The author, John Keel, the author of the Mothman Prophecies book. The voice of Indrid Cold, heard on the telephone in the film, uh, is actually the director, Mark Pellington. It's his voice. Uh, and not only that, he recorded his own voice so that it could be played underneath the voices of any character that spoke to Klein, Richard Gere's character. So anytime John Klein is talking to somebody on the phone in the film, apparently every time, um, the director's voice treated to sound like injured cold is also present subtly underneath creating a kind of weird effect. Okay. Which was, I didn't notice that at all. Well, I didn't either, but it, it apparently won a bunch of awards for it um, for like sound right. design and stuff, because the whole idea was that you were supposed to question whether basically anybody could be injured cold. Mm-hmm. Like who, who is injured cold could be any of these people. Right. It's quite a kind of a mystery throughout most of the film. So I thought that was really cool. Before we move on, I would like to mention uh, our good friends at Tee Public, who they do all our merchandise for us. If you like this show or any of our other shows over at multiplenerdgasm.com, uh, you can go to multiplenerdgasm.com slash merch, and they'll take you to our store, which is on Tee Public. Uh, and we've got a bunch of shirts for all of our stuff. And we've also got, we, we kind of curate a collection of other shirts from Tee Public, and they're created by independent designers. Uh, pretty much anything you think of, there'll be some Mothman shirts. Um, we're going to add to the store. Uh, in honor of this episode, we've had some Carrie Fisher ones on there recently. Um, we had a bunch of Stranger Things ones, Doctor Strange, all sorts of stuff. If you want a t-shirt of something, it's probably on there. That's at multiplenerdgasm.com slash merch. And anything you purchase via that link, uh, they'll support the show. So that's, that's really helpful. And another thing you can do to help us out if you want is to jump over to iTunes and give us a positive review. That is incredibly helpful. So I want to talk a little bit about John Keel, the man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a mystery. <laughs> yeah. He grew up an amateur magician. Mm-hmm. He was always fascinated by magic and ventriloquism. He was a very accomplished writer as well. As a young man, he wrote for men's travel magazines as well as some of the UFO magazines. Mm-hmm. On one of his trips to India, he met a sadhu, which is like a, a holy man. Mm-hmm who told him, teach yourself to be curious, not skeptical. You will learn more because you will see more. Mm. Which opened Keel's mind <laughs> to everything. <laughs> yeah, that does kind of sum up how I feel about him, mm-hmm. that quote. Mm-hmm. I, I really feel like he took that to heart. Yeah. 
Absolutely. He does in the book, he paints himself as a skeptical at times. Yeah. But then we'll go on to say UFOs must exist because XYZ and XYZ is always some ridiculous concept that ha- is not based in fact at all. Yeah, he seems to value, not value more, he, he is skeptical and he will question things. But then also if somebody tells him something happened, he's very quick to, to say, I will assume that that is true mm-hmm. until there is evidence of its untruth, which is really not a scientific way to think about things because, I mean, it's, it's not easy to prove that something didn't happen. He wrote The Muffin Prophecies in 1975, and he had originally planned to co-write it with a gentleman named Gray Barker, who was also a writer, uh, who wrote prominently in the ufology, 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 you, yeah, paranormal <laughs> field. He wrote, he wrote about a lot of that stuff too. And they were originally going to co-write this book together, uh, but they had some sort of falling out or, or something went wrong, and Gray Barker released a book of his own uh, talking about the collapse of the Silver Bridge and linking it to the Mothman and, and, and all this kind of stuff and, and linking it with UFOs and, and kind of started the whole thing off. And then in 1970, that, that book came out in like 68, I believe. And then in 1970, Keel, John Keel, wrote a book called Strange Creatures from Time and Space, which also had a section on the Mothman. But in that book, Keel only mentioned the actual Mothman sightings, as in people who saw a big thing with wings, with red eyes that looked like a moth. He didn't mention UFOs. He mentioned any of that stuff, and he said it's completely erroneous to blame the collapse of the rickety old silver bridge on flying saucers or men in black. That's a quote from the book. So he was seemingly arguing against Barker's, you know, idea that this whole thing was somehow linked to UFOs. But then five years later, the Mothman prophecies came out, and it was like even more outlandish and all over the place than apparently Barker's was Mm -hmm. like linking all these random UFO events and stories and anecdotes and, and just things that he'd collected all linking them all to the Mothman and the collapse of the bridge. So I don't know what happened in the five years. Well, the Mothman prophecies book barely mentions the Mothman. Sure. There are a few sightings, less than a handful of sightings Mm -hmm. and then hundreds of UFO sightings Lights in the Sky, mm-hmm. and Men in Black. Yeah. And that is mostly what the book is about, which I was not expecting at all. No. And it, actually, I was quite disappointed. Yeah, so was because I. Because I thought, Mothman, yeah, cool, that'll be really interesting, like mm-hmm. a weird creature. But there's actually, I mean, the story of the Mothman is a bunch of people saw something and they don't know what it was. And some scientists have come up with some some possibilities, which we'll talk about later. But, I mean, that's about it. And then the rest of it is is just all this crazy UFO stuff that, I don't know, I don't find that that interesting. Well, that's not really what I was looking for. Yeah, exactly. People who knew John Keel, such as reporter John C. Sherwood uh, and another author and skeptic Robert Schaefer, said that he was kind of a trickster uh, more than he would admit, and they suggested that maybe the Mothman prophecies and a lot of his later writings, which are all kind of based around UFOs, paranormal, and this idea of ultra-terrestrials, which we'll, we'll explain in a minute, uh, all of that stuff, he may have just done it for fun and for the money. Mm-hmm. And he potentially was not a true believer. He just found this stuff fun and interesting and people paid him to do it, so he did it. Right. Ultra-terrestrials are what John thinks that what other people think extraterrestrials are. Yeah. 
Um, he said, instead of thinking in terms of extraterrestrials, I have adopted the concept of ultra-terrestrial, beings and forces which coexist with us but are on another time frame and can cross over into yeah. ours. He mentions at one point sort of the idea of light moving from the different spectrums into the you know ultraviolet into the visible spectrum and then back out again. And he says he thinks these things do the same thing but with our reality or I'm not sure why they need spaceships like to do that. Yeah, well not only that he basically that's his go-to explanation for any kind of phenomenon mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it gives him an it kind of like is a catch-all for him to say potentially anything is true. He he'll apply it to like he, he and he does apply it to like Bigfoot and like aliens obviously and uh all kinds of anything you can think of. Mm-hmm. Like a religious phenomenon throughout history. It's all a result of these, these beings. And it's interesting. It's an interesting theory, but I mean, there's no evidence. No, no. And the evidence he uses is very lacking. Mm. Um, some of the stuff that I found that he mentions in the book, uh, is that some of the witnesses say that they, there was a lack of odor. The thing they saw, right. Which is evidence that it must be not of this earth, which I find insane because, <laughs> sure. well, when people see something, unless it's a really overpowering scent, is that really what they're focused on? No. No, especially in, in, in these cases, too. These people are terrified. Like, that, I think... That's right. I mean, personally, I think that's why they see things the way that they did. Because they mm-hmm. get scared and the adrenaline and then it's dark and they're seeing something that's not really what it is. Right. So, I mean, obviously, they, of course, they're not going to remember what it smelled like. Another thing that he said was that... um. When men in black appear, they're often not really wearing the styles of today. He said a lot of time contactees will say that they had uh, glasses that didn't look right or thick old shoes is a main one. Every time somebody comes to him and says, I saw I saw a man, he said, what did the shoes look like? And they say, yeah. oh, oh, they were thick sold. I don't, I never look <laughs> at somebody's shoes. Of course not. Like, and if somebody turned up on my door and say, do, do not speak to John Keel anymore, that's not where like, I would look. This man is scary and has large shoes. Yeah. Like, yeah. I found a funny quote from him, actually. He said, the entities foul up in other ways. They arrive in clothes that are out of style or not yet in style. Their vehicles are out of date. If they use slang, they might come up with archaic terms like 23 skidoo <laughs> or hubba hubba. I love man in black to show off and say 23 <laughs> skidoo to me for some reason. Yeah, what? Like, the f- what conversation brings up an, an FBI agent saying hubba hubba. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the poor bastards not only fail to understand who or what they are, but also where they are or what time period they're in. Some of these mistakes seem intentional and some have allegorical purpose, but others seem to be just mistakes. It's all just so vague and wishy-washy. But oh, to him, that's some proof. Of them, some of them are intentional, some of them, you know. Oh, or- but that's every contactee has... Something different happens. Sometimes their eyes, they get pink eye. Yeah. And, and that's proof because every once in a while that happens. It's not consistent with him. There's no scientific method. Just if something happens, it mm. must be proof. Uh, he mentions at one point that it occurred to him that a lot of UFO sightings happened on Wednesdays. So he looked up previous UFO sightings that he had nothing to do with. Mm. And they happened at Wednesday on Wednesdays too. So he said that that is a huge day. And he will often tell people when they want to see UFOs, just go out back on a Wednesday. And it turns out they do. Yeah. This is, 
there's a couple of things I want to mention about about the way that he operates in in the book and with all these things, the way people operate. Before people offer up information like that, like I saw a UFO on mm-hmm. a Wednesday, almost certainly he offered up right. Wednesday as the preferred day. That's right. Or did he have thick soled shoes? Oh, um, he did I think have so. Shoes. Yeah. Right. And I mean, he doesn't even seem to realize that he's doing that. It, it, like he, he tells some stories in this book where he, from my point of view, he is clearly leading the person, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, whether intentionally or otherwise. Mm-hmm. He, maybe intentionally, maybe not. But he is doing it, and he doesn't seem to realize it. Right. And that's, that happens a lot, I think, in cases like this. Like people who say, for, even with the Mothman, right? Some kids, right? The first people to see the Mothman were a bunch of kids in a car. Yep. Uh, most of the sightings took place around an old abandoned military base. Mm-hmm. They, a bunch of people saw something. Mm-hmm. It was in the newspaper because it's a small town. Remember, like, it's not that this was big news. It was it's right. that it was a small town. So, yes, there are newspaper clippings, but there was nothing else to talk about, probably. Other people saw it. Then other people saw stuff. Mm-hmm. Not people saw it independently of each other and then came together and they all saw the same thing. It's all, you know. It's all built on other experiences. Yeah, like you see what you what you have been kind of influenced to see sometimes in this play. I, I mean, right. I do it too. It's right. just that I feel like, I don't know, I feel like I don't jump to conclusions like some, some people seem to. <laughs> like, oh, it's the Mothman. No, it's probably an owl. Another quote that I found that John Keel said in the book, which I found interesting because, like I said, he sometimes paints himself like a skeptic. He said, those of us who somewhat sheepishly spend our time chasing dinosaurs, sea serpents, and little green men in spacesuits are painfully aware that things often are not what they seem. That sincere eyewitnesses can and do grossly misinterpret what they have seen. That many extraordinary events can have disappointingly mundane explanations. Uh Uh-huh. So he... (laughs) He knows. He starts out by saying people lie. Yeah. Or they're mistaken. Yep. Yeah. And yeah. then. Human memory says, is really bad. Well, this is fact because somebody saw it. Yeah. I know. He, he's. I, that's why I wonder some of these people who knew him who've said that he kind of just ran with it because mm-hmm. it was popular and it made him more money. He actually, there's a quote from him that I don't believe I put in, in here. Um, actually, no, it was a quote from Barker who said that the the weird books are the only ones that make him any money. Right. And so they they just went all in in that direction and I think maybe that's why he's a bit disingenuous sometimes mm-hmm. with with his his stuff. There is one more thing about Keel I wanted to point out. He died sadly on July 3rd, 2009. Um his his website, I assume it was his or maybe it was started at the same, in the same year, uh, johnkeel.com. It's actually run by a friend of his called Doug Skinner. Um, and it, it seems like he took over all John's old case files, uh, and it seems like he he actually did collect a bunch of stuff about this. He's got newspaper clippings, he's got files and documents and uh, interviews that he did, like recordings and and scans with interviews, and like all the articles have like handwritten notes by by John. And so, well, on some level, he did take this seriously. It is a, it is a thing that happened. Like people yeah. did see something. But we're talking like from from the '60s through till 2009. Like he was keeping all these case files, and and the website is quite interesting. Like he posts very frequently, uh, and he puts up just something interesting that he found in amongst all John's clippings and mm-hmm. notes and, and and things. So if you're if you're interested in kind of that kind of stuff, it, it's a pretty good resource. But again, take it with a grain of salt because I right. feel like his <laughs> methodology was a little bit <laughs> screwy. But he definitely seems to have done a great job of collecting all this stuff. Well, 
Let's talk about the Mothman. The the actual Mothman. Yeah, the actual Mothman. Mm. Um, like we said, there were not that many sightings. No. Um, just a few. And then most of the sightings are of UFOs and that which we'll get into in a minute. And there have been more since the release of the book. Uh, but there was a long time where they, he just went away. Mm-hmm. So, like we said, it was first seen by some teenagers in the TNT area, which was a munitions depot. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has now been declared an environmental disaster area due to the waste that was dumped on the site. <laughs> which is funny because everyone used to hang out there in the 60s. Yeah. It was like a cool yeah, recreation right? spot. Uh, it was where most of the sightings of Mothman were. Yeah. So through the book and through some videos that we watched, we saw that most of the sightings were not actually sightings. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> some people saw some red lights or Red eyes. Yes. Um, some people saw things that looked like big birds. Yeah. They described them. Things that looked like a hairy man. Yeah. Um, really, every sighting of Mothman was different. Yeah. So I don't know how Keel took that to be, well, it must all be the same See, entity. I, yeah. I unless feel like he, it his, can change. Yeah, exactly. He would have been like, oh, well, obviously it can mutate into other things or mm-hmm, morph or mm-hmm. something like that, which is. Um, paraphrasing the author Charles Fort. John Keel said, once you have established a belief, the phenomenon adjusts its manifestations to support that belief and thereby escalate it. See, he knows. He just exactly. does it anyway. Exactly. So some people saw this thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a very small town where everybody knew each other and it got into the paper. So more from there, more people saw it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we watched, there was a pretty good, well, I thought it was pretty good. <laughs> it's a pretty interesting show. Uh, on like, I think it was Monster Hunters mm-hmm. on the History Channel, debunking was, the myth. Yeah, they did an episode on it. And they did a bunch. Of, they had a bunch of different people actually investigate. And there was one in particular who um, they cut out fake Mothman kind of signs, I guess, or figures out of wood of various different sizes with reflectors for eyes. Put them in spots throughout the the trees on the side of the road. Had witnesses drive along, uh, and then. Immediately. Um, yeah, immediately asked them how tall right. were these things. And most of, well, not most, but a lot of them got it wrong, mm-hmm. like significantly wrong. Mm-hmm. Like a very small 12-inch, uh, you know, cardboard cutout of Mothman could be seen to be seven foot tall. Right. When the person just glanced at it in the darkness. like That's right. And that- It's all about perspective and, and things. Yeah. And a lot of people said, a lot of people that, you know, claim to have seen the Mothman back in the 60s said that it could have been anywhere from 5 to 15 feet of a wingspan. Right. That is a huge difference. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's massive. And not only that, people did see large birds as well. Mm-hmm. And and no one disputes that. Like, there, were, there was a bunch of sightings of Mothman and a bunch of large birds right. around the same time. Like The TNT area is also um, an environmental area. Yeah. Like, it is, it is a park. Yeah, exactly. It's and a wildlife park. In particular... The sandhill crane, uh, which is a very large bird, mm-hmm. like like uh, startlingly large, mm-hmm. uh, and has looks like a man from far away. It yeah. has long legs. There are various species of owls mm-hmm. in that area, and birds' eyes in reflected light are red. It is called the tapetum lucidum, which is a layer of tissue behind the retina. Um, its purpose is to reflect light back into the retina to give them better dark vision or night vision. Right. But it glows red in in bright lights. Because the light reflects back. Yep. It's similar to how uh, dogs or cats' eyes will 
glow green. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, but that the the first thing I did when I saw that people were basing their sightings on glowing red eyes was to look up what color is the tissue behind bird's eyes. Yeah. And saw a red, and I was like, yeah. Yeah, because you're okay. familiar with like. <laughs> for those who are wondering why the hell she would think of that, <laughs> she just does uh, veterinary work. Yeah, I mean, it seems Occam's Razor. There were birds. Mm-hmm. Seems quite obvious to me, and I don't know. I understand why people have to. I, I understand it's kind of embarrassing if you got, got scared, scared of a bird. by this thing. Uh, but like, come on, guys! <laughs> it's also very possible, as we said, it was a. It's an environmental disaster area. Mm. It's not as likely, but it is possible that it could be a mutant bird. Sure, possible. <laughs> <laughs> One other thing uh, that the film touched on quite well, as we mentioned, was kind of the phone disturbances. The film actually opens with um, Richard Gere's character mm-hmm. being startled by a noise on the phone lines. That comes up a lot in the book. John Keel seemingly has a lot of issues with his phones. Uh, oh, uh, <laughs> he, uh, the, last, the last few chapters were about the endless phone calls that he received and about how he thought his line was bugged, but he kept going to the um, uh, the phone exchange and demanding that he see his line. And they would show him and show him that it couldn't possibly be bugged on their end. And then people from the FBI would say, they showed you? They never let anyone in there. <laughs> and then they were still billing him for all these calls he didn't make, or people would call him and he would answer but have no recollection of doing so. Mm. He later found out that he had another phone number, one number off, that he was paying for that he didn't know about that was redirecting to someone else who could imitate his voice. Right. Oh, boy. <laughs> the the weirdest thing for me about all this phone stuff was that he never really seemed to come up with a definitive answer on who he thought was doing this. Like, was it the Mothman or was it, was it the aliens or was it the He thought or was it that the- it was the men in black. Right. But at other times he thought, it was the FBI because he said that uh, he, this, apparently this was an interview. Uh, despite the fact that they showed him the phone lines and that there was nothing on the phone lines, there was nothing interfering with him. Mm-hmm. Apparently the phone company told him that there was some kind of voltage disruption on his phone line, which uh, indicated, you know, that happens when the feds or the CIA bug your phone line. So, I mean. This whole book kind of read like a paranoid old man. Yes. And then, that's what makes me wonder, was he really paranoid or was he just, he just wrote down whatever came up? Right. <laughs> Before we finish up, I do want to talk a little bit about the UFOs and Men in Black because they did, they were a major part of this. Yeah. Surprise to me. I didn't, I had no idea that, that, that that's, even the fact that the Men in Black came from the same kind of place. That's as, right. As the Mothmen mm-hmm. is, that's weird. I didn't know that. Right. Uh, well, John Keel says the flying saucer lore of the past 27 years has been built on three main components. They are the sighting reports, which are usually poorly investigated by amateurs and believers, or they are based entirely on fragmented and often inaccurate newspaper stories. Mm-hmm. The testimony of the contactees, which I kind of take as the same thing as the reports of yeah. the sightings. Sure. Or three, messages received through spirit mediums and ESP. Mm. He goes on a lot about this in the book. That everyone who has been contacted before um, has developed ESP powers. Yeah. And that they seem to all know about each other, even though he did not give any information to any of them about Mm. other contactees. Mm. Uh, 
yeah. and they they knew where to be at certain times to meet up with their men in black or aliens or whatever they are. Sure. But I kind of wondered why, like if if the Mothman, if they're all from the same place, right? right and the Mothman has come to what seems like to warn us of impending disaster. Mm-hmm. Why are the men in black now here posing as humans mm-hmm. badly? Yeah. To tell us not to believe anything about the Mothman. Yeah, discourage to, you from writing about it. Yep, yeah, and to yeah sway us away from any of the UFO sightings, which were numerous in this book. Yeah. Nightly. Yeah, he talks about it like everybody sees these things every like, day. Like every day they would go down to the TNT area in huge groups and they would all sit mm. there for hours and just watch all of the lights that couldn't possibly be paint planes because of the way they were flying. Yeah. Or And he makes, the, he makes the assumption that you, the reader, also experience this stuff frequently mm-hmm. and that there is no question that this stuff is real and he's just putting the pieces together for you. Right. He also goes on about how the actual CIA has funneled millions of dollars into research and that they also have kept all of this sure. from civilians. And I wondered why, like, why would they, what reason do they have to do that? And what mm-hmm. reason do the men in black have mm-hmm. to pull us away from the, what everybody is seeing? Yeah. Right. Well, according to Woody Derenberger, who mm-hmm. spoke to Indrid cold. Oh yeah. Uh, Indrid told him that it would only cause panic. If the world knew women would commit suicide, throw babies out of the window and this kind of panic could sweep the world. Just just the women? Yeah, apparently. Wow. Throw babies out windows. <laughs> but then I looked on the CIA.gov website, and they have similar reasons. They did put money into this. Sure. But uh, you have to remember that this was the 1960s and 70s yeah. during the Cold War scare. Mm-hmm. So when people started reporting that they were seeing lights in the sky, mm. the CIA took that seriously because it could have been the Soviets. Sure. Yeah, makes sense. So they did put a lot of money into researching and found that there was no evidence for anything else. (laughs) (laughs) The CIA website says the panel concluded unanimously that there was no evidence of a direct threat to national security in the UFO sightings, nor could the panel find any evidence that the objects cited must be extraterrestrials. It did find that continued emphasis on UFO reporting might threaten the orderly function of the government by clogging the channels of communication with irrelevant reports and by inducing hysterical mass behavior harmful to constituted authority. Mm -hmm. The panel also worried that potential enemies contemplating attack on the United States might exploit the UFO phenomena and use them to disrupt air defenses. And you can find this on CIA.gov in the role of study of UFOs. That's actually really interesting. Mm-hmm. And it kind of explains away, like, yeah, maybe they were trying to get you to shut up at one point. Because, right. And it's because yeah. they didn't want the Soviets to catch on and use that sure. to attack. Like, it was kept from the papers. It was kept from mainstream media whenever there was a sighting. Right. Right. Because if it was, I mean, as we can see here, everybody would have started seeing UFOs <laughs> yeah. and it would have caused panic. Yeah. So yeah. I thought that was that was pretty interesting. No, that is. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> that's really, really fascinating. Well, to conclude, after the collapse of the Silver Bridge, which happened on December 15th, uh, 1967, that was the last sighting of the Mothman. Somebody, um, a wino who lived under the bridge, claimed to have seen the Mothman as the bridge collapsed. Uh, 46 people died in that incident. Yeah. And people took it because there were no sightings of the Mothman afterwards. They took mm. it like they must be connected. But really, right. with... 46 people in a very close-knit town. Yeah, it's a very small town, and these people all knew each other, and it was this was like a horrible tragedy. These people 
drowned in their cars. Like it's it's an awful just before thing. Christmas. Yeah, it's awful. Of course, there were no sightings. People had better things to worry about at that point. Mm. There have since been sightings of the Mothman in other places in the world before yeah. disasters. But only after the book came out. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Which was a it was a bestseller. Uh, it was a, it was a New York Times bestseller, I think. The Mothman wasn't it? It was mm. it was huge. I don't know why. I know it's, it's it's really not it's not that great to read. I found it really painful. This is one of really those books painful. that like we read, so you don't have to. Yeah, I was so disappointed with the book because I thought it was going to be really interesting, and it just really wasn't. It was really painful, and I worry that that if we do other ones like this, it's all going to be like that. Maybe all <laughs> of this paranormal stuff, when you get down into it, mm-hmm. is just painful and boring. I find it baffling that anybody could read this book and then go on to believe anything listed in it. Right. Or... I was rolling my eyes on the first page. Or that somebody could go in already believing this stuff and come out justified in their belief. Yeah. If you were a little bit curious, like maybe there's something to it and you started reading this book, I feel like it should make you go, well, oh crap. Yeah. Like... Yeah. Well, if you liked this episode please go to multiplenergasm.com. We mm-hmm. have other podcasts. Um, every week, Matt with Luke and Dan do the Multiple Nerdgasm podcast. Mm-hmm. And we also have the specials channel, which has been a little bit empty as of late, but we do have a few things coming up. Luke has Rooster Teeth um, Expo yep. in Sydney. And Matt and I have PAX East in Boston in March. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully we'll get some interviews up there. So please keep a lookout for that. If you want to send us some suggestions for future episodes that you think have a great mythology that go along with the film. No UFOs, please. Yeah, no, no, no more of that. Please email those to necronomenom at multiplenergasm.com. All right. And if you are interested in aliens, uh, a good alien film you can watch is The Arrival, Mm -hmm. which we watched recently. It's really good. Go see it. (laughs) And please, uh, like we said before, go to multiplenergasm.com slash merch and Mm -hmm. you can check out some really cool t-shirts on TeePublic. Yes. As always, we want to leave you with a question. This week, we want to know, is the Mothman a harbinger of death, a non-human entity sent to warn us of disaster, or the product of mass hysteria and overactive imaginations? What do you think? Necronomenom at multiplenergasm.com. Head over to our Facebook page. Tell us what you think. And please, like us on iTunes. Do it. Like us. We're likable. Okay, goodbye. Bye.